Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Welcome to Writer on the Road, where telling stories matter, writing them down is even better, and publishing them is the greatest goal of all. But it's important to remember, through all the toil, tears and testing times, and there'll be plenty of those, it's the journey that matters. And it's the journey that we're here to talk about, the who, where, what and why, and how of storytelling. During these podcasts, I'll be sharing my journey of building and monetizing my writing business, as well as inviting others from all stages of the writing journey to share their stories. For this, my first podcast, officially titled Podcast Number One, I've invited the master raconteur himself, Graham Kenlow, travel writer extraordinaire, Australasian president of the International Food, Wine and Travel Writers Association, host to the ever-popular Travel Writers Radio Show, Intellect, business writer, singer, singer, and grandfather. Welcome, Graham. Have I missed anything? Oh, thank. How do I live up to that to that uh, intro? I thought you were talking about someone else. <laughs> no, it's um, it's how I've come to know you and how I've come to think of you. And as you and I were discussing earlier, you are my go-to person whenever I need a little um, piece of um, advice or, I guess, uh, moral support. Uh, so I thank you for coming on and being my very first interviewee. Well, it's uh, been uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to watch you develop as a as a writer and a storyteller, Melinda. So uh, I'm I'm flattered that you should ask me to to be your first guest. Uh-huh. Uh, look, Graham, I've got to tell you, in six months' time, if you're still saying that, I'll be I'll be really really pleased. But I promise I'll try not to. Um, of course, I yeah no. I'm sure I will be. I'm sure I will be. Cool. All right. Um, over to our first um, question. As I said, my, the purpose of my podcast is to follow people's journeys, follow people's stories. Uh, now I know what you do now. I know what you've been up to lately, but I'd like to take you right back to the very beginning. Um, everyone has a story to tell, and I'd like to know what your story is and what your journey has been. Well, uh, I'm I'm a journalist. I've been doing that for more than four decades. And uh, I actually consider myself to be very lucky. I, I've found myself in many instances in the right place at the right time. Uh, and I was just talking to someone else who interviewed me the other day on, uh, on J-Air, the radio station that we do Travel Writers Radio from. And uh, I'd forgotten some of this, but... Uh, uh, I was reminded that I I was very lucky to, to be a journalist in Canberra on uh, on the very day that Goff got sacked. Um, so I stood I stood in front of him. You don't see me in pictures because I'm where all the photographers were. I'm holding up a, a 
a recorder, an old tape recorder, to take down what he was saying to the assembled crowd and maintain the rage and all the rest of it. And at the time I was working for the Melbourne Herald, which was an afternoon newspaper, and we were in fact the afternoon paper for uh, not only for Melbourne but for Canberra and uh, also uh, for Tasmania. So we kept reporting um uh, into the afternoon as as the crowd built outside Parliament House and Goff got sort of uh, red with rage and all of that. But earlier in the day, I'd watched the Governor-General's private secretary, David Smith, stuff some bits of paper into the pigeonholes at, uh, at Parliament House. This is the old Parliament House. And I just picked it up pretty casually and sort of looked at it and wandered back to the office. And as I read it, as I was walking, my pace quickened as I recognised what it was actually saying, and I ran into the boss, and I because I was young, one of the younger reporters sent to Canberra, and said to me, hey, we've got a good story here. Goff's been sacked. And not, what's more, there's no caretaker uh, uh, government. Malcolm's been given the job. He's actually been named as the Prime Minister. And that's highly unusual. And, of course, uh, my boss uh, couldn't believe it, a guy called Tony Hill, Anyway, we set about starting to write the story. And uh, so that was one of the days that, you know, I remember vividly in journalism and uh, how the the crowd sort of materialised virtually from nowhere. And then all these media heavies came in from interstate and uh, one of them caused a bit of a fist fight down on the non-members bar, which is a an area of the old Parliament House we used to be able to overlook from our office window. Uh, so it was all a bit of fun. Uh, so, yeah, I count myself very lucky to have been in Canberra. I subsequently wrote a thesis on the role of the media in the downfall of the Labor government, and that got me uh, a Bachelor of... Uh, no, a diploma in journalism it was in those days. I later got a Bachelor of Arts in journalism. But um, So I was lucky doing that. I was also lucky in that one of the first areas that I started to write in after I left uh, daily journalism was in technology, and uh, I was right there to witness the birth of the PC industry. So I've actually interviewed virtually all the heavies in the PC industry at that time. Um, this is when you had access to you know, the boss of IBM, uh, the boss of Lotus 1, 2, 3, although that's probably not terribly well known now. And the other person I interviewed, um, and you won't believe where, was I interviewed Bill Gates, I was at BRW, actually, at the time. I was uh, the technology editor. And I interviewed Bill Gates in his hotel room at the Las Vegas Hilton. And he sat on the fluffy stool under the mirror. And I sat on the end of the king-size bed. And I was doing radio at the time, too. I was working for 3AW uh, just one night a week doing a technology program. And so I had a recorder there to sort of take Bill down. Uh, and, to save, and to save me writing copious notes. And Bill rocked backwards and forwards so badly, like a savant, that I couldn't keep the microphone in front of his mouth. And he was oblivious to the fact that I was trying to record this. And I got back to Australia and the actual um, recording wasn't good enough to put to air, but I was able to use it to write my story. So, you know, I could put up with the fact that he drifted off the mic and I could barely hear what he had to say, but I uh, I had enough to write uh, about my, my time interviewing Bill Gates. And he invited me that night to the Chili Cook-Off, which was a traditional thing in Vegas, which every year staged this big um, IT 
Expo called Comdex. It's now dead. It became so big it cannibalised itself. So, uh, so that was one of the other moments, I suppose, that I remember well. So there are a couple of things I, I've done in my life. And then uh, I went and lived in the USA, something I'd always wanted to do. And um, I was there I was there for a year. I expected to be there a bit longer, but um, working for a Singapore-based company. And uh, uh, they decided to pull their horns in a bit. So I, I came back to Australia. And then I, I took up travel writing. This is back in 95. So I've been doing that now for over 20 years as well. So that's my sort of story in a nutshell, uh, Melinda. I didn't have any idea. All, all I knew is that you went on junkets to broom and I think you were fishing up that way and I thought you were a travel journalist all along. I didn't realise you were as infamous as you as you are. Oh, infamous. Uh, yeah, it's probably the right <laughs> word, actually. Yeah, oh, look, in journalism you, you have to be prepared to do, you know, anything. And you the, one of the beauties of it is you turn up to work and you don't know who you're going to talk to or where you're going to be sent. And Canberra's a classic example. I went uh, – I was flown to Canberra to fill in for someone who was off sick during a parliamentary sitting uh, week. And um, in those days, we used to have to go and sit in the House and take down the proceedings, uh, just like the Hansard reporters, except we didn't use their technology. We used whatever means we had. And, and I had reasonably good shorthand. That was one of the things I was taught as a cadet. Um, so I was sent for that reason. And I ended up staying there three months, which turned into four years and uh, the last year I was married and uh, my wife uh, was up, uh, was here in Melbourne and I was in Canberra on my own and I'd sort of turn up back in Melbourne about every second weekend. That was the one concession the company made. They'd fly me back every second weekend and if I was desperate enough, I suppose I drove the other weekends. But you'd sort of left on a Friday and you got to Melbourne at midnight-ish or something and then you had... Saturday, and then at halfway through Sunday, you had to turn around and drive back. So that was, uh, I guess I was desperate. I did that a few times. But, uh, yeah, so I've done a few interesting things, Melinda. And I can see how the transition to travel writing would have been quite a luxury after that hardcore, I guess, journalism it would have been yeah. good to keep the five-star luxury. Yeah, look, in my days of journalism, there weren't many junkets uh, offered to to us as, you know, traditional daily newspaper reporters. We did have a travel editor, uh, one of the very first travel writers in the country, a guy called Eric Page, who I think has now passed. But um, uh, so, you know, I wasn't used to being put up in five-star hotels or anything like that. So, yeah, travel writing seemed like a wonderful idea. And I started off actually uh, working with Universal Press, who um, who published a magazine called Quorum. Now, that was a business-focused magazine, and Quorum obviously used to do with meetings. Um, so I used to write about meetings and, uh, and conferences and big expos and incentive trips and things. Uh, that's when I sort of started off. And then Telstra bought the company not because they wanted the magazine, because they wanted the digital mapping. So you would in Queensland know the UBD, Street Directory. That yep. uh, that came 
from Universal Press in Sydney, with whom I was working. And uh, so Telstra bought the digital version of all the maps that Universal Press had been creating over many, many years. It was a family-owned company at that stage. And um, having bought all the maps, they used it to um, create their Where Is application, which was around before Google Maps, if you think about it. And then they decided ultimately that the magazines weren't core and that they would get rid of them. So they announced the closure of Corum, a 21-year-old title, and that must have been worth something. But they announced the closure one day, and then two days later they, th- they announced they were going to try and sell it. Well, you know, that doesn't work. They just devalued it on the, fir- on the first day, and then two days later decided it had some value. Uh, so it didn't get sold. It, it just folded, unfortunately. But I was picked up by a woman with whom I'd worked at Universal who had gone out, left them, gone out, and uh, set up her own magazine. Helen Bat Rawdon has a magazine group called BT Publishing, and the magazine I write for still is called MiceNet, and MICE is the acronym we use in business travel or business tourism. It stands for meetings, incentives, conventions, and exhibitions or expos. So I've been really focused on the business side of travel writing, but I do also do some leisure writing, and, of course, the radio show is probably 90% leisure and 10% business focus. I was very interested. I was doing some research for this podcast last night and I saw an interview that you did in Kalgoorlie. Uh, It was business-focused about um, holding conventions and conferences um, around the Diggers and Dealers conference. Yes, I'd known about this conference, but none of us at the magazine had written about it. And it seemed that the conference weren't all that fussed in attracting media. Um, There would be some financial reporters there because this conference attracts 2,000 people. Uh, A number of them are from overseas and they are the heavy hitters in the mining industry. And as the name suggests, it also attracts the finance industry who are out to fund exploration here in Australia and offshore. So it's held in Kalgoorlie because, uh, you know, Kalgoorlie's got some big mines uh, largely based around gold and they're owned by uh, offshore companies. And, um, you know, Kalgoorlie's a great place. So given the chance to go and visit, I jumped at the idea. I I joined, um, I connected it with another trip to Perth. I regularly go to Perth and I report on what's happening in the meetings industry over there, working with the Perth Convention Bureau. They're the government, sort of uh, semi-government body that helps uh, organisations in Perth bid for international conferences and events. Um, so they flew me to Perth for the uh, for their story. And then um, I was flown to uh, Kalgoorlie. Now, I'd never been there, but I had a, f- a member of the family going way back. I didn't know him, but a a fellow who came out from Scotland was involved in the mining over there. So I've always had a fascination about uh, Kalgoorlie and it's a great, great, great city. And I know in your question you're asking, um, or the question you sent me, you're asking about doing the research. Well, really for Kalgoorlie, I did the research on the spot. I just listened hard as uh, Laurie Ayres, who's a local identity and who, who runs a uh, a meeting uh, planning company over there with his wife, um, Ariane. Um, he was talking hard and I was listening hard and he knows everyone in town. He knows all that's going on. He's a publican as well. So he's the eyes and ears of the joint for me. 
and uh, Kalgoorlie got a lot of promise. But at, right at this point, they hold this one big event, which absolutely stretches the resources such that the town mostly packs up and goes to Bali and rents their house out to delegates to this conference because I think there's something like 600 hotel rooms and there's 2,000 delegates. So there's obviously a shortage. So a lot of homes get rented out for serious money and the owners fly off to Bali and spend the money before they've earned it, having a rest over there. And um, not only does it fill the biggest place in town, but they use the car park next door to put about a half-acre marquee up and uh, there's an overflow of uh, delegates who sit in the marquee watching what's going on in the hall next door. So, you know, it really dominates the town. And so the Kalgoorlie people got together and decided, listen, we can do one big event. What if we had the chance to do a bunch of smaller ones? We could actually get this town rocking. And it's a great place to visit, Melinda. I commend it to anybody. Um, be a good place for you to take, you know, yourself on the road because... It's got some fantastic attractions up there, including what they call the Super Pit, a huge big mining operation that Bondi actually put together. And there's some great yarns up there. There's uh, there's a, a police squad that deals specifically with gold stealers, and it's based in Kalgoorlie, I suppose, for obvious reasons, uh, not that the town's full of crooks. There's a two-up school that they tolerate up there. It's out of town a little bit. It's made of corrugated iron, and we went out and had a look at that. That was a bit of fun. And, you know, there's some magnificent stories over there. And uh, so I really enjoyed uh, going to Kalgoorlie. And I'd, I would just commend anybody who's interested in uh, the, what the backbone of the mining industry looks like, uh, go and have a look at the place. It's tremendous. It's got a gold-leafed dome on what is now the courthouse. I think it used to be the post office. And uh, so the local mining companies got together and they bought this gold leaf. And I think there's quite a few thousand dollars worth of gold leaf and they someone went and got up there and stuck it down onto this um i guess prior to the gold it might have been a a copper dome or something but it glints in the sunlight looks fantastic you can see it from all around the place and uh, so that's just one of the little quirks of of kalgoorlie which has got a good food and coffee culture and some great pubs and serves good meals and you can get fresh seafood comes in every day so kalgoorlie go for it I've got to tell you, Graham. I had a little smile while you were telling that story. You talked about the Kalgoorlie Gold Stealing Squad. I lived with my husband at the time, um, who was the underground manager at Norseman, at oh, um, right. the mine down there. And my novel, The Miner's Wife, um, which I wrote as part of my PhD, was set in Norseman. Uh, so everything I'd that you're that. telling you me. You yeah. did tell me that, but I'd, I, I remembered you'd written the novel, but I didn't remember the detail of it. Oh, well, that's a great story. I mean, you, you well, obviously, you have other stories to tell. Well, the one thing that I will tell you now, I guess, is the gold stealing squad in Kalgoorlie were very, very interested in my novel when I was writing it because as you do with stories and as you pick up things as you travel around, I used to play golf at Norseman with the blokes on the golf course down there, and they yep. used to tell me yarns and they didn't know I was a writer. So I used to go home and recraft, I guess, their stories into yep. my novel. And unbeknownst to me, the gold-stealing yarn that I was writing turned out to be true. 
So what they were telling me was truth and what I was writing down was truth and the guys who told me the story are now unfortunately in jail. So it became very, very interesting to me how truth and fiction can intermingle. What I thought were were yarns about buying tea tree farms in Port Stephens with ill-gotten gains turned out to be very, very true. And so when I published my novel, I was very excited. I thought I'd go back to Norseman and say, look, I've got this great novel. And it was actually not received very well by the locals of Norseman because he'd had prostitutes at the local railway hotel and he'd had um, drunken brawls and it had this wonderful gold-stealing heist. And it's not exactly how they saw themselves in Norseman. And I now find myself with the problem of, yeah, I've got a great story and, yeah, it's based on truth and, yeah, it's got all these exciting things that really, really happened, but the locals don't want to know about it. And I did try to gate crash the Diggers and Dealers conference on a couple of occasions. And, oh, are you there? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Oh, no, no, it's all right. My computer went off. Uh, And it looks like I may be able to get into that conference and speak on some of the panels there and be able to get my story out in that way. But I'm also going across for a um, two-month junket over Christmas this year. And I'll get in oh, touch yes. with Laurie and hopefully we'll be able to um, tell some stories that way. Oh, yeah, Laurie's a good good guy. He, he really is so well connected. You know, we walk down the main street and yeah, he cocks his finger and his hat. And g'day, that's, he says to me, that's the CEO of the town. We are a bit further along. Oh, well, oh, well, that's the mayor. And Laurie's a councillor, so he knows his way around. And, you know, we go and have a lovely cup of coffee in a restaurant and three or four people come up to him. He's just one of those guys and he's a lovely fellow to, in, to boot. You know, he knows everyone and mm-hmm. they all know him and like him. So I don't know whether that's true of all publicans. Maybe it is. Uh, it's, look, I'm heading up to Mullaney on a different story this weekend. I'm going up to the Black Hole Rangers. Yeah, that's and great. And my first stop. Yeah, well, my first stop is the local pub. It's been there for 100 years. It had all the um, tree fellas back in the olden days. Only tree fellas. What happened to the fourth bloke? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, But that's where the stories happen. The stories always start at the local pub. And as as a storyteller, it's usually one of my first stops um, because they're always happy to share a yarn. I think that's a good tip. Yeah. And, look, Mm. when we used to get sent on – I, I used to, for the Herald, do stories on decentralisation. It was a big issue. And the regional towns of Victoria were mightily concerned that, uh, you know, everybody was heading to the city and they were getting left behind and they didn't have the services that the city had and, uh, you know, it was expensive to get freight up there and the telephone costs more. And So, they, you know, we would go to all these towns, myself and a photographer, and uh, do these stories. And uh, my two... Uh, ideas for getting a, a good yarn were, yep, go to the local pub and have a beer in the public bar and yak to a few blokes. And as long as they know you're not there to do an expose on them, uh, they'll talk to you. And then the other thing was, uh, if, you, if you could find a taxi driver in the town, even though it may not be a big town, there'd usually be a taxi driver, he or she, mostly he in those days, would uh, would also know the ins and outs of, uh, of everything and would be happy to share... The information with you so you know taxi drivers publicans they're, they're all good they're all good fodder for for stories that we like to tell 
Mm. And I guess that's I guess that's something as I'm talking to you, and it's way off what we were going to talk about. But in order to get a story, talking to people will always give you an opening. If you're prepared to talk and you're prepared to listen, something always comes up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think if you want to tell stories, you've got to have good ears, you know, um, and you probably ought to be using the ears in proportion to the mouth, like twice as much as you use your mouth. Uh, I'm not a good example of that because I just can dribble on forever. But... Um, you know, I, I think if you show genuine interest in people, they will tell you amazing things. If you if they feel like they can talk to you with some ease, um, then, you know, you'll find that you, you build some sort of relationship. It may not be exactly trust at that point, but some sort of relationship. And if you ask them about them, most people are more than willing to tell you about them and their achievements and what they've done. And uh, like I was talking to a prospector, who goes to the Diggers and Dealers Conference in Kalgoorlie. Uh, Laurie introduced me to him. We were just chatting away and I sort of said, oh, you know, what, you go to the conference? He's, he said, yeah. I said, so you're not just a little bloke out with a with a waving one of those uh, magnetic devices around? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we all start like that. But he said, I was basically accumulating um, uh, claims, you know, um, accumulating lots that I could put together, and uh, and I said, oh, so you're a bit like a real estate agent for mining, and, and he said, yeah, but he said, you can stake a claim, but you have to actually pay the government a certain amount of money, and you've got to spend a bit on it, you can't just sit on it and do nothing. Anyway, he accumulated a bunch of these in a particular location, and he said to me, I was at the Diggers and Dealers Conference one day, and over morning tea, a bloke came up to me and offered me $14.8 million for my blocks of land uh, that I had the claim over, and he said, and I took it. So that was a good story, and it's true. It is true. Oh, and when you live out in those places, you you hear those stories all the time, um, and doing the historical research for my novel, the stories are there, and some of those stories are in my novel. I'm really going to have to send that to you so you can... Um, Maybe you can talk about it for me and have more luck um, selling it than I am. Uh, the other thing is that I picked up on when you were talking there is when you travel, um, people talk, and part of my market with my rider on the road is the caravanning market and the the, the itinerant market as, as we travel around Australia, this great country of ours. And on the side of my caravan, I've got my books and my websites, and without having to do anything, people will come up and talk to you. Yeah. Um, they just want to know your story, and you turn that back on them, and their stories are far more interesting than anything I could ever come up with. Um, and I guess part of the idea of this podcast and part of the idea of me travelling around is to encourage people to do something with the stories that they've got to tell, whether it be to a magazine, whether it be for their family or whether to put it in, into a book form um, yeah. because all of our stories are interesting and not enough of us are writing them down. No, and, and you know, the other thing that I tend to do a bit more now than I, than I used to is I will always have my digital recorder, my digital field recorder with me and um, I... Uh, you'll find that I think if you set outside your caravan with your recorder 
and invite people to sit down and, and talk to you for your podcast, you'll get a queue. You have a line of people who want to tell you their story because it works for me. Um, now, you know, I just happen to have a, a radio station that broadcasts our stuff first, but a lot of our listeners are, are on SoundCloud and they just they don't want to listen to the whole two hours of our show. Um, they are interested in a 10-minute segment usually. And uh, so, you know, we get quite a big response from all over the world, play, unbelievable places like uh, um, the the former Soviet bloc countries. It's just unbelievable, Ukraine and uh, uh, Afghanistan and all these weird stands, you know, that I didn't know there were so many stands in the world. Um, they're all listening to, uh, well, not they're all listening, but a number of our listeners come from those from those places it's just weird of course we have aussies and yanks and canadians um because you know the the travel writers radio basically is a is a production of the international food wine and travel writers association that, that i set up um the radio show i mean and uh so people like to think oh you know i'm, I'm uh, i wouldn't mind hearing what the travel writers are reporting on these days and that's where we get a lot of our audience from i think but um yeah so i take my recorder with me and uh Lots of people are happy to give you 10 minutes and tell their story, and I try to do it in that amount of time if I can. Um, but there's, I've been, like, at places like Broome and um, uh, where else do I see them? I'm down in the, uh, in the southwest of WA. I, we see them around Margaret River and all that area. And uh, I was up in the Kimberley, and there were plenty of them up there on the road. And I've seen them in Gympie. When I went up to a big uh, the Gympie muster a couple of years ago, we, um, we, I stayed in a tent there. It was freezing cold. Um, but the bloke next door planned his trip of he and his wife in their van and their uh, Toyota. They planned their trip around Australia to end at the Gympie Muster, and then after that they were going to drive back home to central New South Wales where he's a professional seed grower. Um, he has broad acres of, of crop, which is just for seed, and he sells the seed to somebody. So, I don't know, some group, Yates or someone. Uh, but he was a lovely fellow to chat to. And uh, so you meet some wonderful people on the road. And, you know, I'm just reminded of Macker on the ABC. He's made a career out of talking to people on the road, hasn't he? I was just about to tell you about that. My inspiration is Australia all over with Macca. And someone said to me the other day that he's oh, still he is. going. Yeah, I so, heard him last yeah, weekend. That's yeah, well, that's what I'm basing my podcast on and that's why as I travel around and I'll, on the two months that I went down to the south coast, I was coming back up and we're heading back up through the Newcastle, through the Hunter Valley there, and everyone seemed to be in their vans and heading to the Tamworth Music Festival. Mm. And they come from all over the place, they get out their rigs and off they go to the Tamworth Music mm. Festival. Um, and just outside there is a little place, and I can't remember the name of it, but they had a pumpkin throwing oh, right. festival at the same time. And so everyone would go to the Tamworth Music Festival, but they'd all pop up for a day to throw their pumpkins. And I thought it's really interesting what we've got going on in our own backyard yeah. that people in the city just don't know about. Uh, so... I think if we summed up, if we've achieved anything tonight, we've talked about the purpose of what I'm I'm hoping to do, and it's to bring those stories out and get people on like you 
to come on and tell us your experiences and how you use those stories, how you how you record them and how you produce them at the other end. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the radio, the radio show really gives us a great opportunity. And, look, the reason I set it up was that, well, the fellow who invited me to do it, I'd known a long, long time, and he said, Garney, you know, you've done radio, come and do something on my station. And he literally set up this station. And, and I said, oh, look, you know, I... I don't know that I've really got much to say. And he said, well, what are you doing all that travel writing? And then the, the penny dropped and I thought, wow, here's an opportunity for me to get the members of, of the association here in Australia, of which I'm the chair, uh, to give them an, another way to tell a story because some of them have been uh, laid off by newspapers because Murdoch's uh, quite happy now to use technology to replace journalists and also to engage in citizen journalism, which... You know, um, I, I don't mind people reporting uh, things and photographing stuff and sending it to TV stations, but it isn't really journalism that's got uh, sufficient credibility for me, to be honest, because um, someone could say anything to anyone, and most people think what happens on the internet is the gospel truth. Well, we all know that that's just not the case. So um, anyway, I felt that here was an opportunity for journalists, professionally trained to have another way to tell their story. And a lot of them had no experience of radio. Now, I was just lucky because as a young reporter in Canberra, I used to report into the Macquarie Network out of um, uh, out of um, Canberra and uh, 5AD in Adelaide and 3DB in Melbourne as it was then. Um, so basically, you know, I cut my teeth doing a couple of minute reports live to air and sometimes to tape. Um, and, and so I just thought this is a good opportunity for the journalists to understand this old medium, which is sort of suddenly new again. You know, wireless takes on a totally different meaning these days, but we used to listen to the wireless. Now if wireless is to do with Wi-Fi and the rest of it. And in fact, when I first started listening, I was on a crystal set. Uh, that's putting my, my age out there, isn't it? But... Um, so we, we record a lot of our stuff we record by phone if we... Yeah, if if we haven't been in actually face to face with our interview subjects, we'll record the interviews by phone. We process them in the studio. We've got uh, equipment that helps uh, improve the signal from a telephone, and uh, there'll be play. We put that to air. We compile a show. We run some music because people don't necessarily want to just hear talking heads for two hours. So we play uh, two or three music tracks each hour which break things up, also give me a chance to find some crazy some crazy music that I might like or that suits the topic. For example, we had a story on the refugee uh, centre in Melbourne, and so I just typed into uh, Google, I think it was, a uh, song about refugees, and up came this song, and you wouldn't believe it, uh, so I, I played that. And then we had another story about, a, well, this is last night, we had a story about a travel company in Britain called Large Minority Travel. Now, they specialise in adventure travel, a bit like uh, that uh, race around the world, And uh, but they, they'll send people off on adventures in Cambodia on tuk-tuks, for example. So I thought, oh, this is a good story, and my reporter had, had done a good job in it. So I get on the Google again, song about tuk-tuks. Sure enough, up comes a song about tuk-tuks. I listen to it, make sure there's no profanity, and yep, I played, uh, I played that. And then I had a story. I had an interview with a guy who announced that by the end of this year or by later this year, we would be able to bid 
for vacant aircraft seats right up to the point of departure, virtually at the departure gate. Using an app on your mobile phone, you'd be able to bid to sit in that seat in business class that's otherwise going to go empty. And I thought, this is a good story. So we interviewed him and then I I got on the Google again and I typed in um, song about cheap flights. Up came this parody song from three British women about cheap flights. It might have been the Ryanair song for all of the complaining they did about the you know what happened on board and how expensive it was and how their 50p fare suddenly uh, had to have every other little thing added to it and it became so outrageous but they were so locked in they they'd agreed to pay for so much that you know that the last lot they had to pay for they just couldn't back out of so the 50p i think became 50 quid anyway uh, they uh, they were very very funny and um the girls in the studio couldn't believe that I'd found this song, but, you know, that's one of the crazy things we do, just to try and make radio a bit interesting, and we don't take ourselves too seriously, Melinda. We've had you on the show. <laughs> and, and what a disaster that was. But I was just thinking no, was you it? were talking about Googling in songs and things. I had my year 12s today, and I Googled. I did exactly what you did. I, we were talking about job-seeking because they're about to go out into the big wide world. So I Googled in movies about getting a job, and up came The Wolf of Wall Street, which had 504 yeah. profanities. <laughs> so I R-rated. No, didn't yes. work for me at all. Yeah, I, I bet it did. I haven't actually seen that movie, but I feel like I, I know enough about it to maybe I'll get it when it's available on Netflix or something. Um, yeah, I mean, that, uh, there's amazing job opportunities out there. There's lots of job opportunities for people in our business, you know, in the uh, – in the travel industry, in all sorts of areas that maybe people wouldn't necessarily expect. So every now and again on the show, I, I talk to someone who's got an interesting job in travel or food or wine, and uh, just to give some of these kids an idea as to what opportunities uh, might be out there that are sort of under their noses but they don't recognise. So, you know, we we try to cover the whole gamut if we can with the, with the radio show, and... Uh, yeah, we even talk to people who've written books like you. <laughs> Don't worry. that my, my novel will be in the mail to you tomorrow. Oh, I look I forward promise. to reading it. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, Graham, I've taken up more of your time than I promised that I would, but as usual, you're so very, very interesting, I could just let you talk all night. Um, but I think we've covered most mm-hmm. of our questions. Um, I think researching your story before you start, can be a, a good idea. As I said, I went on and had a look at um, your SoundCloud last night and I did exactly what you said. I punched in the stories that interested me, so it was 10 minutes here, 10 minutes mm-hmm. there, and there was a lot of there were winery stories, there were destination stories, there were, there were people stories that I thought, oh, wow, um, I'd like to go there and do that. Um, and... I think we've covered the international food, wine and travel writers thing. We've covered the travel radio. We've covered your career. Um, We've got in a bit of a plug about Kalgoorlie. I guess the only thing left that we have to do is should people be interested in travel writing as as a way of telling their stories, how do you recommend that they they go about it? How do you recommend that they start? Yeah, and lots of people do travel, so, you know, they're – no worse 
or no better than those of us who are journalists who also travel because we all have experiences and it, it's actually about your collected experience that is the critical part of travel writing. It's not a laundry list of, of uh, you know, what flight I went on and what the food was like and all that. Um, it's more about what serendipitous thing happened to you that you think other people would find interesting, amusing, sad, you know, what emotion could attach to an experience that you've that you've had. So, and, and I suppose the other thing one should mention is uh, we don't do radio with pictures. I think they call that television. And I did that. I tried that and didn't didn't like it much, so I left it. But if if you're out there doing travel writing, you want to have good pictures because you want people to be able to see what you've done. And even on our radio show, we do run an image on SoundCloud of the person or the destination or something that relates to uh, the interview. Um, so, you know, collect collect your thoughts as to what it was you did that you think is really interesting. Now, it might be really interesting to your next door neighbour. I don't know that talking to the dog and getting him to bark counts as interest. I think, you know, you need to talk to a human who can ask you questions, maybe some hard questions. And um, so, yeah, experiences is what it's about. And I think they're the things to be looking out for. And because uh, if you look at or read some of the great travel writers, um, you know, Thoreau and those sort of guys, they are writing about interesting experiences, what the man in the seat next to them on the Iron Express was wearing and, and uh, how he um, how he combed his hair and what his nails looked like and what book he was reading. And, you know, all of these, the, these are the word pictures that build up interesting situations and, and how you got to talk to the guy and, um, and how he turned out to be much, much more interesting than you thought he would be just looking at him at face value. I suppose the other thing I would say along those lines is um, do your research but don't prejudge what a place might be like. Be be open to be be drawn into an experience. Um, now, you, you and I were among some others in Hawaii, um, Melinda, we could have gone there expecting it to be all, uh, you know, boogie boards and uh, Hawaiian shoes and uh, uh, grassy skirts and all the rest of it. And yet uh, beyond that, we had these incredible spiritual, I suppose I'd call them, experiences there that, that I didn't expect and that really put Hawaii in a totally new light for me. And I've been going there for years. So I'm interested in the ancient Hawaiians. I'm interested in the fact that it was the commercial interest in Hawaii that shut down the monarchy, and now Americans are clamouring for a monarchy, and they had one for all those years, but people got a bit greedy, and uh, they sort of virtually locked the Queen up in her uh, palace, Ayalani Palace there in Honolulu, until she signed over her rights to the commercial interests that are now involved in sugar cane and pineapple growing and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, I felt that trip was it was wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity. And I know you went to Maui, didn't you? Oh no, the Big Island. Oh no, I went. Yeah, I went yeah. to the Big Island, and it was a pivotal moment in my writing life as well. I wrote a story called um, "I Never Promised I You a that. Cowboy," and it was about well, I can't even remember the guy's name, but he was a native Hawaiian man. And he was just the most beautiful man. But what shocked me was I never expected a cattle story on the big island of Hawaii. And ever since then, I find myself writing cow stories. 
And here I was at an international food, wine and travel um, convention and I found myself writing paddock stories instead of the five-star yeah. stories. And that's happened to me ever since, Graham. I don't know if it says anything no, about me, so. but I'm going up to well, Mulaney to write a cow story and I thought cow stories just have no, gone true. away. No, that's true. You know, that's the, it's the good old back to, back to the earth sort of scene that that's prominent now in the restaurant business uh this nose to tail eating and and uh, farm gate to fork that you know it's it's all about getting back to the basics and uh, being uh, a conscious consumer eating seasonal things not uh, and there's a story on television last night about uh, the bluefin tuna stocks in australia being quite low and uh, Neil Perry of all people has agreed now not to uh, sell bluefin tuna in his restaurant because he now recognises that it's a virtually an endangered species. But we're fishing it because everyone else is fishing it. Every other country is fishing it, so to speak. And that's a pretty crummy reason, I think, to uh, persist. But the industry obviously wants to make a quit, and and I suppose they should be allowed to do that. But uh, what's the total cost going to be? And um, yeah, when there's no more tuna, then I guess we're a, a poorer. Uh, civilization for that. Uh, anyway, I, uh, you know, if people are interested in travel writing and um, maybe you are a travel writer, you've got a blog or you've been writing for the local rag or uh, you've done a book um, or, you know, you're interested in food or wine or travel and, you, and you're professional about writing, um, you're welcome to um, send us a note. And uh, we, you know, if, you, if you're interested in looking at uh, the Travel Writers Association, that's www.iftwa.org. And it's an, an American um, established organisation, established there in 1981. But its roots go right back to the 50s in Paris when a group of people got together and talked about what they'd eaten and what they had drunk over the previous week. And so it started very culinary focused and then it sort of branched out into travel. But um, it's a great organisation and I'm proud to be um, part of it and to be leading uh, it here in Australia. Um, and uh, you have to qualify to be a member, so have a look at uh, the website and you'll see what the requirements are. And if you if you think you're interested and want to get in touch, my details are on the website, uh, the Australasia Division, and uh, we'll be happy to help you. All right. I, th- I think that's a... a- Excellent place to end it for tonight. Um, I'd like to thank you, Graham, um, for being being a true friend as always, and for your very very interesting uh, anecdotes. I guess as we went through nearly the last hour, and I was We've been going for an hour, have we? that I'd take up half an hour. Uh, Forty-seven minutes. Lucky my car's minutes. not on a yes, meter. And I thought... Lucky I'm at home <laughs> and the car's in the garage. <laughs> I'm hoping your wife doesn't come and strangle me. Uh, because she's it's what, 9, she's 9, watching TV. Um, no, uh, it's a pleasure to yeah. talk to you, Melinda. You know, I've enjoyed watching your growth as a writer and as a, as a person, and I hope we catch up again soon. Well, we definitely will. And for anyone who wants a transcript of our chat tonight and um, maybe, maybe some details that Graham um, shared with us, um, they'll all be up on my website, uh, Um as soon as I learn how to t- transcribe them, which will hopefully be in the next couple of days. Um, and I'll be back with you next week with another episode of Rider on the Road. And, and so good night for me. <laughs>